If we were to take that exact question to our brother Luke, the author of Luke, and we were to ask him, how does one destroy a church? He'd be quick with an answer. Because his second volume of Jesus Christ, his first volume being the gospel titled after his own name, but his sequel, which we have been reading and applying to this church since October of last year, he has much to say on how one can destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Because Acts is filled with attempts and attacks on the church. And the maestro for the vast majority of them is the devil. Now, we are a church that believes in the devil. But we are also a church that believes that Christ has victory over the devil. So we are a church that believes Satan is powerful. But we are also a church that believes that his power is is like a Tonka truck to the Optimus Prime of Christ's power. And what is clear in Acts, what is clear is that there is nothing The devil would love or would like more than all things Jesus, all things Jesus, to be stomped out. Thus, why, collective church, we have seen destructive rage against the church, and we're only six chapters in. Destructive rage after destructive rage, and we're six chapters in. And tonight, in my opinion, is no different. Tonight is another attempt, but an unexpected attempt. And this attempt is, if you haven't noticed, it's quietly nestled in these small amount of very dense verses. Even though we read only four verses tonight, uh, I was thinking it's kind of like hard candy. I mean, they are small, but it is to be savored and taken very slowly. To just bite into it would not be good. Because in these four verses alone... They spill over with church life and ministry, administration and calling, heart, responsibilities, expectations, shall I go on, diversity, priorities, leadership, servanthood, and another threat to end or damage the church of Jesus Christ. So it's a very juicy, juicy chapter. But if you noticed, at least I did, this chapter is a bit mild. This chapter is a bit mild. I think this chapter is infamous for the grind of the just everyday church. Meaning, there's no words of miracles. There's no grandiose sermon. There's no angels. There's no healing. There's no earthquakes or roaring winds. This chapter is simply the people working out what it means to be with other people. This chapter is simply the church being the church. This chapter is simply another day for the church. Even notice this, this chapter is steaming hot with themes of the church. But Acts 6 has no mention of worship services, children's ministry, drummers and lights and free coffee. It's not describing the life of the church by events or bulletins or buildings. And yet these verses have more about the form and function of a church than a lot of other chapters within the Bible. See, at this time, commentators and early church historians still estimate that the the first early Christian church is around 20,000 people. 20,000 people. That's massive. 
That's essentially the entire population of Pacific Palisades. I mean, this is mega church central. Mega church. It's huge. But something is terribly wrong. Something has gone wrong. And so as this community of Jesus followers is continuing to grow very rapidly, essentially that means what? New problems. So with the growth of the church, this chapter shows us that these people are wading in murky waters. The murky waters of fresh challenges and troubled congregants. This church isn't what you know, I thought it would be or going back to old ways or mixed emotions. But what I want us to get tonight is what hunts in murky waters. And that is great whites. Understanding that this is perfect territory for attack. See, it's these everyday common issues which we are to be mindful of. Everyday common issues. The other destructive attempts by the devil and the world or the flesh or violent persecution that we've seen, and so on, I highly doubt we will ever experience what they've gone through or know what they have seen or experienced what they've heard. But an encounter like these verses today, we probably all know all too well. Because these verses show us that where there's growth, there's growing pains. See, if the flowers spread so do the bees. If the moss grows, so do the gnats. And if the church grows, so do the challenges. And these verses laid out pretty clear what's going on. Look at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that's the church growing, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So if you guys will just bear with me, let's get our hands muddy as we dig up for a moment or two what's going on. Bear with me. Hellenists were Greek-speaking, Greek-living Jewish people, and majority of them living outside of the holy city, Jerusalem. But as well, what we have here is that we have holy city-dwelling Hebrews. They are the natives who spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, whose culture and lifestyle was distinct from the rest of the Mediterranean. And these people were in the same church. And what was very common is that these Hellenist widows wanted to spend their final days in Jerusalem. It's like Florida to them. These Hellenist Jewish widows want to retire there. And this making the number of widows significantly large. Now, know this or not, widows are very near and dear to the heart of God. All who are helpless are very near and dear to the heart of God. Even as Talitha was telling us tonight about the unborn. They are very near and dear to his heart. And so old, uh, excuse me, the widows we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are to be cared for and helped especially if their immediate family can't, then that responsibility falls on the family of the church. So if that's what we know, and then we look what we have here, we've seen that the widows are not being cared for, but apparently they're being neglected. These helpless widows are being neglected. Whether intentionally or not, there was lack. Does that sound 
like this church that we've seen for the last six, cha- six chapters, there's lack. Because this has not been the case for the entire intro of Acts. If you've been with us as we've sort of hiked and wandered the plains of the book of Acts, you probably remember such striking terms and phrases to explain the church as nobody had need. They described the church as they were all of one heart and of one soul. Describing the church as they had all things in common. But what are we missing then? (laughs) Nobody had need. Is it the defined print say, except for needy widows? Everybody else was fine, except the widows. I think so. See, what was happening now is, is this, this one-heartness is no more. This one-heartness is no more. And the apostles who were responsible, the apostles being those uniquely qualified and called to follow Jesus, were responsible for the people's offering and the distribution and the finances and the generosity. And obviously, with 20,000 people, and who knows how many widows in that bunch, that made it a very difficult task to manage each and every distribution. That's seriously, I was thinking today, that's like one peanut salesman for all of Dodger Stadium. That's what these guys are up against. It's challenging work. But the Hellenist and the Hebrew distinction leaves us to wonder, is this a racial issue? Is this a diversity issue? Are these Jesus-following Hebrews at that time rid of their old cultural divided ways? Simply, some may not have been. For new Christians, some, they shed their skin of their old ways like almost immediately. And for others, it can take time. Like for some of us here, coming to start to follow Jesus for the very first time, immediately you could pour all the alcohol down the drain or whatever it could possibly be that could be that vice or those old ways. And then for others, it will take time. But nonetheless, I dare to say that this chapter isn't to unveil better administrative tactics for the apostles. Today's verses are not about the struggles with the distribution of food or financial quarrels but it's about something even more dangerous, an even more dangerous monster hiding within the closet of every church. And that is this. That is division. Division. Satan is clever. We've got to get this. Satan is clever, but Satan is not original. Satan is a brilliant craftsman, but Satan's tools are very archaic. You see, if we want to know how Satan plans to destroy collective church, if we want to know how Satan plans to destroy this church, our answer can be found within these verses. See, let us be mindful that the devil is in the details of what he has basically done in the book of Acts. Because those same blueprints is what he's going to be using here. Try to remember back, if you guys have been with us, Satan has tried to damage the followers of Jesus physically, and verbally and emotionally. Satan has tried to deceive the followers of Jesus. There's a better way. You can keep that. Hide this. Withdraw from this. Do more than you should. And lastly today, Satan would love to simply see division. Satan wants division here. He wants us to divide. 
For the church in Acts, where this community was once had everything in common, now has massive conflict. But in my opinion, I, I don't know about you, does this really surprise anybody? 20,000 people, hundreds upon hundreds of these little home groups. Does it surprise anybody that there's a conflict with a grouping of people? I mean, every time there's a grouping of people and you put them together long enough, there will be conflict. All girls choir, conflict. You know, uh, my little bronies convention, conflict. Work, school, family, friends. There will be conflict, 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 which will tempt us all to divide. And that is no different for the church. And we know division can come from a a multitude of different ways in the church. See, some want it louder and some want it quieter. I wish the church was more liberal. I wish the church was more conservative. I wish the church had way more Holy Spirit juice. No, no, I wish the church had way more word. I wish we were more grassroots. No, I wish we were more professional, older, younger. You guys get what I'm saying. But for these guys, for this early church, let's see what sparked the division. So their problem, the soul of their divide, was something very unassuming. Look at verse 1 again. This is what sparks this division. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint. A complaint. The devil can use quiet murmuring to divide you guys remember that scene we're gonna get super spiritual right now do you remember that scene in jurassic park where wayne knight's character newman remember he steals the dino dna and what happens he's stealing it and he store his car crashes in the storm do you guys remember that scene and he comes across that very seemingly curious small dinosaur you remember what he says to it i think he actually said the words you're kind of cute See, murmuring, complaining, is that Jurassic dinosaur. It's smaller, it's unexpected, it feels unthreatening, and then what happens? It's crazy neck, skin thing. Starts rattling and spitting black acid. It's terrifying. And Acts thus far, think about it. We've been confronted by these like giant T-Rexes of opposition. Beatings and floggings and threats and prison. Maybe we've grown way too familiar with the fact that these guys are being beaten and thrown in jail cells a lot. Today is a new one for the books, though. And it's just as dark. And it's that of grumbling. And it's that of complaining. And it's that of murmuring. Now hear me. Verse 1 doesn't say that these Grecian Jewish men and women were complaining that the that the widows weren't getting the daily distribution of the food to the the apostles' face. It doesn't say that. What does it say? They complained against the Hebraic Jewish men and women. They complained against them. This is a good moment for us to slow down and talk about these cautionary verses, this cautionary warning. And as I was putting this together, I had this weird feeling in my gut 
and this weird thought in the back of my mind that it feels like for me to talk about complaining in the church, like that I've got some weird agenda with the church. Like, oh, Casey's using verses to spank us again. Like, not what's happening. I hope that this is relevant for us and stings where it needs to. But if it's in the text, we teach it here. So this isn't my chance to do anything with my own agenda. This is our chance to go through the word of God. And again, tonight's text has a little blurb about those in the church complaining about others in the church. About Luke's word. And we think about Luke's word. Luke's word complaining, murmuring is very, get this, is very intentionally placed and chosen. See, it's a word with uh, immense depth to it. It's not knocking the freedom of speech, but this word illustrates in its meaning hand over mouth and private grumbling and private complaining towards another. This word is very illustrative. It's not necessarily referring to the complaints that, man, this weather stinks, or this burrito's terrible, or the Dodgers lost, or whatever. Although those complaints may need to be managed, tonight's idea of grumbling is something even darker. See, to murmur, as the Hellenists were, is to strip away another's character and choices behind the walls of our mouth. Excuse me, the walls of our hand. And my friends here today, Collective Church, that is absolute rot. That is rot. It's a rot to relationship, to health, to growth, and to Christ church. Book of James in the Bible, it always has something to say about topics like these. Uh, The book of James says, do not grumble against one another. Do not do it, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And of course, the wildly famous Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, the Bible has so many things to say on murmuring and complaining and grumbling. And I, oh mama, I know this truth all too well. I am king dingling of complaining. I find that I am an expert in people's weaknesses more than their strengths constantly. I, it's, I'm, I'm ashamed of times of the words that come out of my mouth as I rip to shreds dear brothers and sisters in this church or in others, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I hope somebody can bear witness with me, but that's really what murmuring is, right? It's to preach how everything is wrong. Everything is wrong except our perspective. Our perspective and our opinion is right. If only you would have done this. If only you would have done that. Friends, hear me. I've been involved in church ministry in some way, shape, or form since uh, 98. And before moral, moral failure, before nepotism, before pornography, and before pride, before any of that, in my experience, is what destroyed my pastor friends' churches or their churches in general was grumbling. The great destroyer of ministry and growth and relationships and community and mission are murmured words against 
one another. Is there anybody here tonight murmuring about collective or about one another? Are you murmuring about the person next to you? Know this. It is a way of explaining pain without any gain of relief. Few things bring more accomplishment to the devil than murmuring. It's popular in our day and possibly popular in our church. It's popular in the first church as we see what we're reading today. And if you know or not or remember, complaining wandered the wilderness just as the Israelites did. Get, this is brilliant. This, is, this rocked me this week. Get, get this. Hear this. The word Luke uses deliberately, he deliberately uses is the exact same word to describe the Israelites who were redeemed from sa- slavery in the Old Testament book of Exodus. See, if you know the story or not, just know this. God delivers his people from impoverished slavery, a horrendous situation, and as they're with their deliverer, they complain about everything. Everything they complain about. Everything. It's seriously like being rescued from a burning car and you're whining to the paramedic on your way to the hospital going, this ambulance is a bit chilly. Can you turn the AC down? Can you need leather seats in here? I'm dying. Like, it's just, that's what it's like. But we'll see for the Israelites in the Old Testament, God handles the murmuring. God deals with the complaining once and for all. I want to read a um, small narrative portion from the book of Numbers and pay close attention to this because it is going to blow your socks off. This is so crazy. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Let's try that again. And the people complained against God and to Moses. Let's try that again. And the people murmured against God and to Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Does that make anybody nervous? (laughs) I get so nervous reading that. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that the people of Israel died. Yeah, it's intense. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Mamacita. What an insane, intense story. And we don't have time to go into the details of why God would send fiery snakes. I can't explain what a fiery snake is. Uh, We'll be addressing those type of questions in the coming weeks of May. Uh, For now, notice the lesson. For now, notice the lesson. From my study and from my research, it seems that this is the last time we see murmuring like this. The Israelites learn their lesson. The nation of Israel forever changes their tone. Granted, they sin and stumble here, but them facing the bronze serpent 
changed them. Forever changed the way they saw their circumstance. It forever changed their timid, scary, fearful, weird, complaining hearts and minds. This is huge for us. Huge for us. See, the wrath of God in the book of Numbers is on the people for their sin of ingratitude and murmuring and rebellion. But we see God chooses to rescue his people from the very death that he instituted, from their rebellion, from their complaining. He decides to rescue them. And all they have to do to live, to be saved from God's due and justified wrath is look to the provision. Look to the provision hanging from a pole. Face it, God says. You need to face it. Jesus Christ, uh, much later in the New Testament, brings the very same Old Testament story narrative up to a man who questioned him going, how can somebody be born again? This man brings this up to Jesus, and Jesus answers him by saying these words. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus informs this man and now informs us to be saved from the wrath of God, we must look to Jesus. As the snake hangs from the pole, so Christ as well hangs from the cross. Friends, do you get what this means? In becoming like the snake, which is representative of all that is evil in the Bible, Jesus then was the embodiment of that evil, of that sin, and the embodiment of our murmuring and complaints, the embodiment of our curse and death. And by in becoming sin and a curse for us, he took ours away. I keep thinking about what Talitha was saying for those in this room right now who could be hurting and seeing there is no way I can be forgiven. Christ took all of that upon himself. He took it away and he replaced it. This great exchange with righteousness, with love. This is what the first church in these moments forgot. This is what they have forgotten, what has happened to their ancestors and ancestors and forefathers oh, so many years before. That Christ took our racial divisions, our pride, our cliques, our isolated, self-consumed hearts and minds upon himself at the cross. This early church has forgotten, and thus they complain. They've forgotten, and they complain. And these apostles, they get wind of their complaints, and rightfully so, they handle it. But rightfully so, they don't handle it personally. The most important thing they could do is to decide that they personally weren't going to do anything. They delegated. Which again doesn't make the devil very happy. Why? Because the devil wants church leadership to be so tied up in knots that they're distracted. They're distracted from what? Look down at verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching uh, preaching the word of God to serve tables in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now hear me, this is important. It's saying, it's not saying, excuse me, it's not saying that the apostles weren't willing to do hard work. 
They've been doing it this whole time. They were willing to wait tables to distribute food and to handle the funds, to serve wherever is needed as elders and pastors and the apostles should have been. But something we must understand in the church is that the elders' responsibility is of a different calling. Not that they are above it, but that they, are purely, you know, that they purely have a different function. And those whom they appoint, which we're going to get into next week, we're super pumped to have preaching pastor um, Christian from Reality Stockton to come and share with us. So before that, he's going to cover all that kind of stuff. But we're going to get into the fact that those whom they appointed, the seven, had even greater leverage to care for the people and the widows, more than in a lot of ways, the apostles. Simply as an elder of the church, simply an elder of the church, can't and should not do all. Can't and should not do all. And a church that desires that, that pastors then to try to deliver on that, always will lead to disappointment. Always will lead to disappointment. If that happens, people won't receive care. And if that happens, pastors will need to receive a lot of care. Elders and pastors, just like the apostles, are to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Imagine a church, or even imagine this church, if the church leadership wasn't devoting themselves to prayer or to the word. We weren't opening the Bibles with young leaders. We weren't opening the Bible with those broken sitting in our office. We weren't opening the Bible with those that we are doing premarital counseling with. We weren't opening the Bible to prepare talks or sermons. Opening the Bible to define and defend and to direct doctrine in and through this church. Praying with those who are sick. Imagine if we weren't or had the ability to pray with those who are fearful or for the finances of the church or for the mission of the church. We want elders at this church and all Jesus proclaiming churches. We want elders to be able to do this for the church's good. This benefits the church. The devil's desire is to distract, to distract the apostles from teaching the word with other ministry and details. See, the, the phrase, the devil's in the details, could not be more true than tonight's verses. Great destruction of a church can come from great distraction. And that's even distraction with churchy things. To distract with good things. All these other things that we look to the church to do are wonderful things. But the devil would love for church leadership, like the apostles or elders or pastors, to get tied up in them so that the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word and prayer is completely neglected. And if all of that happens, we just neglect the preaching of the word or the ministry of the word and prayer. To all that happens, this simply means that we or churches will pass away or worse, or worse, this church will just maintain. This church will maintain like a like a lukewarm bath. Friends, if we want to maintain as a church, then let's complain. If we want to maintain as a church, let's murmur our faces off. If we want to maintain as a church, let's grumble. If we want to maintain at a church, maintain at a church, let's not do our part. If we want to be like a lukewarm bath at a church, let's consume. Show up on Sundays and leave on Sundays. If we want to maintain as a church, let's view church 
as something we do on Sundays for an hour. If we want to maintain as a church, let's let the pastors and elders do everything. And we do nothing. If some people are here are totally okay with that, hear me out. Personally, we're not. And neither is the Spirit of God. The church's pathway to growth and health and effectiveness is never through grumbling or self-interest or ease or comfort. A maintaining church is ease and comfort. But if you want to live a life that is promised to those who follow Jesus, then recognize you have a place here. Recognize you have a place here. And if if not here, that's fine. Then another Jesus-proclaiming local church. This is why we chose the name of the church to be collective, not Casey Church. And that sounds dumb. But we chose it to be collective church because the responsibility of care and the responsibility of ministry and the responsibility of discipleship and the responsibility of the Great Commission that Jesus said to all to baptize and teach and to disciple was for every single person here. It was never meant just for pastors or elders or leaders or the apostles. Church, hear me. I and we should not want Satan to win on the west side. I don't want Satan to win in this community. And if we want or contribute to making a church that merely maintains, dare I say, Satan will win in destroying this church. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a community where everyone is willing to do anything. Again, wisely, not destroying your family, you're wisely willing to do anything. But men and women who are willing to do whatever it takes without grumbling or complaining. Men and women who know their opportunity and seize it. I tell you what, as a pastor, you could not ask for a more incredible church than this. You guys have, I don't know if you guys have any idea. This church is incredible. And as I walk up and I walk by the setup team as they're unloading this massive truck filled with all these really heavy things and I see all these unbelievably brilliant men and women doing it who can easily run circles around me behind a pulpit who are brilliant with the Bible geniuses. My mind thinks of of Dave Buck or Judah or John Mulraney. My mind thinks of Wally and all these brilliant people who are incredible and every week they show up and they model how willing they are to do what it takes to be a part of this community. My mind goes to the people across the courtyard here. People who are loving our children, the little ones of this community who sacrifice two weekends of a month to just care for them and teach them the Bible. My mind thinks about this amazing worship team band. These guys are epic. They're epic. They practice Thursday night late. They show up early and they stay later than a lot of us. My mind thinks of the Teradon team. Lance, God bless you and your crew. These guys are so amazing. And if you're not a part of it, get a part of it because it's beautiful. It is not glamorous. It is not perfect, but it is glorious. Oh, thank you guys for modeling that you are willing to do whatever it takes. That is amazing. And as a pastor, as an elder who has a chance 
and to devote himself to the word of God in prayer and know that these incredible volunteers are doing this and going for it. I feel like I can walk through the gates of University High every Sunday or I know that neighborhood groups are happening or tons of discipleship groups are happening and this church is in wonderful, beautiful hands. And please forgive me if I haven't had the chance to say all names that are doing incredible things for this church. I see tons of you out there and I'm sorry I can't name you all. But you guys, by doing this, you're allowing the elders to devote themselves to prayer and to the word of God. Because you know the goal of this church is not to have a bigger church. The goal of this church is not to have a bigger staff or a comfortable church or an impressive church. The goal of this church should be the goal of the first church where the word of God increased and the disciples multiplied. And that happens as we see here when the elders are devoted to prayer and the word of God and all men and women, including elders, all men and women willing to risk it all, even life itself, for Jesus. Friends, this is the type of church I want to be a part of. And if we want to be a church that looks like this, we need these truths to seep deep into the marrow of our bones. They need to seep deep into the marrow of our bones. Let's pray that God would make us such. Amen? Let's pray right now.